Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We have a larger section of scripture this morning. We're going to be reading from verses 53 to 72. Don't normally read that much or deal with that large of sections, but I think it's really important just to see all the different connections that are being drawn here because there's some setup that happens in the beginning that if we just read half of it, we would miss. And I just have to be honest a little bit in preparing for sermons. I don't know if you know this, but I I do spend a great deal of time preparing for sermons. And when I'm making my preparations, I'm in part of it, I'm looking toward the future of what text I'm going to preach. And now that I'm at the end of Mark's gospel, it's really hard for me not to be thinking about the next book, be thinking about planning out those sermons and moving through that. But if we did that, we would be really causing a big disservice to you. Because we are at the climax of Mark's gospel. This is what he's writing for. He's writing to see all everything else has been preparation for this moment. He's been predicting his death, his suffering, which would be accomplishing the redemption of his people. So we need to make sure that as we go and we bit, as we go through Mark's gospel, we're getting to the end, that we don't run out of steam. And that we focus on God's word at the climax of our redemption. Let's read, starting in verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, or Sanhedrin, were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him 
and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. See, the reason why it's so important to read this text in full is because we have really two trial scenes here. And it's set up that way for us. Verse 53, we see Jesus being led by the high priest to his home, as John tells us. And he's having a trial, really a really formal trial by the Sanhedrin. Peter's is a lot less formal. And sometimes we overlook Peter's courage and just see how he was really faltering, confessing the truth to a servant girl. But really that kind of undercuts a little bit of what Peter's situation was. That word for servant girl probably is just referring to a servant. Mark uses diminutives or, you know, talking about boats. He talks about a little boat. Here's servant. He talks about a little servant. The point is that she's not of high rank, not that she's just a little girl. But he really is in true danger. His life is really at risk. There's a reason why all the disciples fled before. What we have here is two scenes of trials. We see a trial in which Jesus succeeds in it and proves his innocence. Even his enemies confessing that. And we see Peter with his trial and failing really under the least amount of pressure that he could have. At least the least amount of pressure in following Jesus' call to carry your cross daily, die to yourself, and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Really what we have is truth on trial. And that's kind of the dominant thing that we see here. And we have this outline in the back to fill in the blanks. And that first one is, can I get a witness? Which, that's Marvin Gaye, and that's the only connection that is there. 
I just couldn't get it out of my head. Because when I was reading through this first section here, the word witness comes up over and over and over again. And the odd thing is, is they can't seem to get it straight. They had enough forethought to plan this out. They're meeting in the middle of the night. Sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Before the sunrise. Because the Roman courts really don't start until sunrise. And if they're going to get Jesus put to death before the Passover, they're going to have to work pretty quickly. So they had enough forethought to plan this meeting, convene all together, all the chief priests, all the elders, the scribes have come together. They had enough forethought to gather witnesses. And Mark tells us there's a problem, though. Mark informs us something the other ones don't, which is why they had a problem. They're going through all the formalities. Sure, there is some illegal activity definitely happening. Meeting at night. Having, this having a uh, trial in which the person who's being tried is not presumed innocent, but is presumed guilty. And really we see that their motive from the very beginning was not to have a fair trial. Their motive from the very beginning was to accomplish their plan to see him dead. And they were willing to do whatever it took to get there. Following all the different loopholes in the laws that we already have seen in places like Mark chapter 7. Where they found a loophole to not give money to your parents, but instead give it to the church. The Pharisees and these people are excellent about finding loopholes to accomplish what they really want to do. Which is to sin against God. What we've seen really time and time again in the ministry, well, the ministry of the Pharisees is that they're all about following the letter of the law. But not the spirit of the law. As Christians, maybe this is just, this is a side point about our culture. We're seeing our culture drift away. We're seeing the laws not reflect really God's laws. And we see them calling evil good and good evil. But we need to temper our expectations. Because we can get all the right laws in place. And yet, sin still finds a way. Because the problem with the law is not the law itself. The law is good. The instructions it gives is good. God's holy law would be, I don't know, probably the best of them, wouldn't you think, in governing a society? And yet, the Pharisees still knew how to play that game. Finding any loophole they could to accomplish their plans, because the law doesn't change people's hearts. It definitely didn't have a problem, it didn't, couldn't change the law, or the hearts rather, of these religious leaders. But the problem is not that they're finding witnesses, it's that all their witnesses are false witnesses. They are, yes, violating the ninth commandment about bearing false witness in court. And this is a courtroom setting. 
they have probably the Sanhedrin normally had about 70 people who met to go through different decisions, sort out God's law to make sure that justice is being done. They gather the witnesses, but the problem here is that these false witnesses couldn't get their testimony to agree. They gathered the evidence. They were trying to find this loophole. If they can just trap him, this would be good for them. But even though they found this loophole, they could not execute on it because they're giving all false testimonies. Think about what this says about the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they could not come up with one instance in which he had sinned. They could not come up with anything that could condemn him to death. It's very obvious from the very get-go that Jesus does not deserve the death penalty, whatever he deserves. In their testimony, oddly enough, when we see an example of it, in verse 57, we see this guy stand up. This is an evidence of the kinds of testimonies that are taking place. And he gave the testimony that they heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and three days later, I'll build another. A couple things that's interesting about this testimony, or really false testimony, is yes, there's errors in it. Jesus never said, I will destroy the temple. He said the temple will be destroyed. We already saw his prediction of that in Mark chapter 13. He predicted the temple's destruction. He didn't say, I'm going to do it. And maybe here they're actually pulling from something they did really hear, like in John chapter 2, verse 19, where he says, he doesn't say, I will destroy, but he says, destroy this temple, and three days later, I will rebuild it again. And he was speaking not about the literal temple in front of them, but they deliberately twisted his words to make it about the literal temple as opposed to his body, the temple of God where God's presence dwells. What they're doing here, and this is an interesting note about lies too, especially when we try to find the loopholes in God's laws, when we really want to actually not follow God's word, but follow our own sinful heart. We too justify our sins. And part of the way that we justify our sins often is by doing exactly what they did, which taking a true statement and twisting it, taking it out of context to mean something else to accomplish what you want. We have this sinful proclivity if, that, if we're going to envision ourselves in any position in this text, the character that we most reflect is not the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the innocent sufferer. We're the people who justify ourselves. Who, when we are broached about a sin, or rather approached about our sin, our immediate response is to excuse it. To say, well, actually what I was trying to say was this or that. I wasn't actually lying. I was, I was telling a half-truth to weasel our ways out of trouble. This is the witnesses that they gave. And how astounding is it then? This is another side point. 
that we have four gospel witnesses that do not contradict one another. That tell the life and story of Jesus, not identical word-for-word stories, but stories which harmonize with each other completely. It's a lot easier to tell the truth and maintain a consistent testimony of that truth than it is to make up a lie and not have those stories contradicting one another. There's a reason why when you're gathering evidence, you separate the witnesses and you interview them as individuals. Because if they're lying, they're going to contradict each other at points. And if you're reading through this and you're reading through the other Gospels and trying to wonder, why do they look so different? Why are they using different phrases? Why does Jesus say one thing in one text and another thing in another? How do those harmonize together? And it's at that point, when we look at the Gospels in general, we should be reading it with an eye to see that these are individuals' testimonies. Word-for-word accounts is plagiarism. Not writing an account of the life of Jesus. And what we have in these testimonies, each of the four Gospels, is a testimony to the reality of what happened. And the reality of what happened, as John himself says, cannot be contained in a 20-page letter. There's different facts that are recorded by all the different authors. And especially with this scene, when you have a room full of 70 people who are all standing up in the midst of the midst of the assembly and trying to accuse Jesus, you're going to have a lot of different voices. You're going to have a lot of different accounts. You're going to have which of those witnesses, false witnesses, are you going to choose to record? Well, as it turns out, the Gospels record different ones. But with the same intent and the same plan, and all those testimonies cohere together perfectly. Just a testimony of the beauty of God's word. The harmony of it should convince us of the, not only the truthfulness of it, but that it's the word of God himself. Those are the witnesses. But then, at a certain point, Jesus just decides to hand over the evidence. At a certain point in his trial, he decides to hand over the evidence. And it happens when the high priest really kind of the president of this meeting, the moderator running this assembly, has gotten fed up. And he asks Jesus two questions in verse 60. And the best way probably to translate that first question, to give that note of indignation and the exaggeration and probably what his voice was, is that you are you really answering nothing? You really are answering nothing, aren't you? You're not going to say a word. Do you really have nothing to say to the people who are testifying against you? If it's false, why isn't Jesus defending himself? Why isn't he defending his rights? If he's truly innocent, shouldn't the truth be put on display? The thing is, is in the garden, Jesus had already submitted to his Father's will. The primary reason for his silence 
is not about whether he, it's right for Christians to defend themselves or not. The primary reason why Jesus is silent in this circumstance is because he has committed himself to die. Luke tells us, though, that Jesus, in the midst of this conversation, says even if he did tell them a hundred times that he was the Christ, because they were set on killing him from the beginning, it would not have changed their minds. Unbelief is not primarily, or first of all, a cognitive problem. Not following the Lord Jesus Christ is not because you don't have enough facts. It's not because you haven't had enough evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. Scripture is very clear. Romans chapter 1 tells us that although they knew God, they did not give, acknowledge him as God or give thanks to him, but instead suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The primary reason why this unbelieving world does not follow Christianity is not because we're not good enough arguers, not convincing enough. God's word has the power to convince sinners and to convert sinners for that matter. The problem is their heart that is obstinate, that refuses to turn no matter what evidence is put in front. And the chief priest asks his third question. In his third question, he tells him he's had enough. He gives a question that has the presumed answer of yes. Verse 62, or verse 61 rather. The high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That word, the Blessed, this is the Blessed One. Probably Caiaphas is referring to the son of David, the blessed one. But Jesus has another blessed one in mind when he speaks to Caiaphas and answers his question. And Jesus really here is giving over the evidence. I've said that it's not, that these are all false witnesses, that Jesus does not deserve to die. But Leviticus 24, verse 16 says that whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and the congregation shall stone him. And that this law applies to everyone who lives in the land, whether you're a Jew or you're one of the members of the nations who just happen to be there. And we see this sort of blasphemy and the same sort of reaction that the Pharisees, or rather the chief priests had, Caiaphas, in Acts chapter 14. Go there sometime and read of that account in Acts 14, verses 11 through 17, where we see Paul interacting with pagans. And they see Paul performing miracles of healing. And they say, the gods have come to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Zeus, and they thought that Paul was Hermes. They came and sacrificed to them. And in verse 13, Paul's reaction to this was to tear his garments and rush into the crowd and cry out, Men, why are you doing these things? 
We are also men of like nature with you. What was the blasphemy that caused Paul to tear his clothes? It was to think that Paul was a god when he was just a mere man. What's the answer that Jesus gives? He says, I am. From the Gospel of John and his repeated I am statements, they would have heard Jesus claim to be the I am of Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh from the Old Testament. They would have probably picked up on that. But even if they didn't, Jesus goes on. Jesus could have stopped there, right? He gave them the testimony they need. They just wanted him to, to proclaim that he was the Christ. Would have been enough to kill him. But Jesus goes on and says, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. This is from Psalm chapter 110, verse 1. Jesus' is probably favorite Bible verse. Seated at the right hand of God. And then he combines that with another text. Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 through 14. Saying, coming on the clouds of heaven. What he's taken is this image that everyone knows is the son of David. When David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he combines that with the obviously divine being of Daniel, chapter 7. The Ancient of Days, the Eternal One who will ride down, coming on the clouds to establish His eternal kingdom in which He'll judge the world of all its wickedness. He's really given up the gig here. Jesus could not be speaking more clearly in the high priest's reaction, he was probably pretty happy. He was like, wait, we don't have to worry about all these conflicting testimonies and witnesses. Because Jesus has condemned himself. He is proclaimed to be not just the Messiah, but equal with God himself. What an amazing testimony. And that would be blasphemy. If it were not true. Because when you receive testimony, the next step is to investigate. To see whether what they're saying, the testimony is true or not. But they've gotten what they need. You know, it's a, an amazing thing. Because the high priest, Caiaphas, that year, had unwittingly participated in prophecy. He unwittingly selected the innocent Passover lamb of God to be sacrificed that year. He chose the lamb who would take away the sins of his people. He was functioning without, as a high priest without even knowing it. God using sinners, even the worst of sinners, even unrepentant sinners, to accomplish his plan. 
Caiaphas himself in John chapter, thir- John chapter 11 had already stated, we need to kill Jesus because it would be better for one man to die that the nation may live. One man give up his life for many. And this is exactly what had happened. Oh, the irony then. That some began, after coming up with this, they all condemned him to death. The trial is over for Jesus. He's sentenced to death. And now all the anguish that he had in the garden has moved to the first physical punishment, the first physical things that he would be experiencing for our sins. They began, think about this, teachers, Bible teachers coming down and beginning to spit on an innocent man, covering his face, striking him, saying prophesy, and then handing him off to the guards who, it says, received him with, bro, with blows, probably an idiom, saying that servants took him and beat him. Took him to Pilate for his second trial. He had his religious trial. The Jews were not allowed to condemn anyone to death, so he would need to be now tried with this substantiating evidence by Pilate. But his fate is sealed here. At least... ...from the Jewish perspective. And they, they blindfolded him. Luke actually gives us more information on this. That in Luke 22, verse 61... Or, no, that's a different verse. Luke 22. In Luke 22, he gives the detail that they, when they blindfolded him... ...and they struck him, that the joke was... ...if you're a prophet, prophesy to see who hits you. Mark has a different point. Mark just points out this irony that they just condemned this prophet. And he shows where this prophet's prophecy has come true. They don't realize what's going on in the garden. They don't realize that he had predicted at the beginning of Mark chapter 14 that all of his disciples would abandon him. And Peter was alone said, I will not deny you even if it means my death. And Jesus' word proves true. Even though Jesus wasn't even around. Jesus is in Caiaphas' house having a secret trial. Somewhat secret. Peter is outside in the courtyard. John knows the high priest and lets him in. He's below. And one of the servants of the high priest came up to him. And as he's warming himself, she looks at him. And really that word look is, appears twice in verse 67. That she looks at him and gazes at him. Mark said that he went and stood by not a fire but a light. It would have been a fire. But he was revealing himself. He was standing by the fire with the other guards. And she's looking in this dim, you know, it's night outside. I think 3, 4 a.m., She's looking at his face. She has a relationship with the high priest and she says, wait, are you with that Nazarene? 
What good can come out of Nazareth? Full of despots and villains. And immediately he's caught off guard. Says He denies it. And what does he do? He goes away to the gate. He's getting out of the light. He doesn't want to be seen. And she talks to the crowd and says, I know he's one of them. He's one of the twelve. That's why he's here. His reaction in these times are, I don't know what you're talking about. Notice that denying Jesus does not mean that you're denying all the essentials of the gospel. Denying the Lord Jesus Christ here does not mean that you have studied the Bible, found all the essential teachings of the scripture, and you have verbatim denied each and every one of them. Because what we're dealing with, the truth that's on trial, is not abstract principles. No matter how true those abstract principles are. And the Bible gives us a lot of them that are true. The thing that Peter denies is the only person who can actually save him. Our apprehension of the truth, no matter how right we are in our theology, isn't the thing that saves us. It's Peter's separation from the Lord Jesus Christ that leaves him without hope and will leave anyone who separates themselves from Jesus without hope. He says, I do not know this man and then the third time, the bystanders join in. They're like, oh, you're right. Certainly, verse 70, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. One of those helpful, harmonious texts for this. Matthew chapter 26, verse 73, we see that these bystanders, they pick up that he's a Galilean because his accent betrays him. Isn't that funny? He's up north, or really, he, he's up north. I guess he's in the south, really. He's in the south, and he's speaking like a northerner. I'm like, come on, what are you doing? We know you're, you're one of them. You have that accent that you're from Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry his entire life. Jesus ministered to the Galilee of the nations, bearing witness to so many non-Jewish people, calling them to repentance and faith. And Jesus here remains true to his word, keeps it, but Peter does not. Peter denies it, and he begins to call curses down on himself and to swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. A lot of things that Peter doesn't seem to know. Seems like everyone would know who Jesus is. This seems a kind of a ridiculous attempt. She might not be a little girl, but she is just a servant. She's not standing, he's not standing his trial in front of Bible experts who are all presuming him guilty from the outset and wanting to put him to death. His stakes are a lot. Lower. If he's found out to be following Jesus, yes, he could probably suffer the same fate. His life is on the line. But it's a lot less formal. 
people are investigating it. Peter thought himself strong, strong enough to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Wasn't it interesting that at the very lightness of pressures, he caves? We all, as sinners, need to make sure. First, we can't give Peter too hard of a time. When I think about my excuses for sins, I look at my past and I say, well, I was young and naive. That's why I did that. I look at my past and say, well, I was really under a lot of pressure. I was just provoked by anger from the outside. And when I get in arguments, it's usually something over as minor as the dishes. It's amazing just how marriage is like this magnifying glass on your sins in your life. It reveals what you thought was hidden. And the things that you get in fights about in marriage or in families for that matter, between brother and sister, are not over the big things. It's over the little things. We cave constantly when we don't rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. We are weak, and our weakness does not excuse our behavior. Peter does not think his weakness excused his behavior. His weakness should have caused him to obey Jesus' command to watch out and to pray. Pray that God would be with us. Pray that God would help us to endure temptation. And with the Holy Spirit, he enables his people to do that as he shapes them into the image of Christ. And Peter broke down and wept. And he wept in that third bulletin, or really, I've been talking about this third point for a while now, but that Jesus remains true to his word. That Jesus remains true to his word. That's what he remembers. See, there's these three things kind of all happening at once. Jesus is in there, in Caiaphas' house. He's having this trial. He's being condemned. He starts getting beaten. And while that trial is going on, he's denying Jesus in the rooster crows. He denies Jesus, and for some reason that rooster crowing did not signal in his mind that I'm about to deny Jesus three times. You think at that point, if he had heard Jesus' words and believed Jesus, he would have ran away then, that he might not deny his Savior. But he doesn't believe his word until it comes true. The second time the rooster crows, that's when he remembers. We're told in Luke's account that at this moment when he remembers, the rooster cries. The third thing that happens, he makes eye contact with Jesus himself. And you know, he's broken the same way every Christian should be broken over their sin. He doesn't make excuses for it. He doesn't say, I was young and naive when he reflects on it in his past. Instead, he points to the fact that Jesus was the innocent one who never opened his mouth when others reviled him and suffered for doing what is good. When the only risk that Peter ran was suffering here for doing what is wrong. 
if he was abandoned by the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news for Peter is not that he was strong enough. That's not the good news that Peter needed to believe in. That was actually the lie that he believed in, that he was strong enough. That he was a man of integrity, of strength, and would not go to abandon Jesus. What Peter needed to know was his own weakness and his Savior's strength. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 is where he reflects on this. I actually think that might be 1 Peter 2. You can check me on that. I might think I did a typo there. I think it's 1 Peter chapter 2, 19 through 25. He's giving advice to the church and how to live. And he says, For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, and you endure? But if when you do good, you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to a God who judges justly. You notice what Peter's doing here? He's holding out Jesus as an, our example to suffer for doing what is good, and yet he distances him from us to show where he's not our example. He's not our example in the fact that we sin. Jesus never sinned. He is our example in the fact that we have the opportunity as followers of Christ, following the commission that he gave to his disciples, to suffer like him for doing what is good. That the power of the gospel can transform the sinner's life where they, by his strength, live for Christ. We no longer have to be condemned and enslaved by our sin to not live for him. We can be enabled to live for him by his strength and his power. But Peter here goes further. He doesn't just, he says that Jesus is our example, but in verse 24, he says, he continued to entrust himself to a God, or to him, God, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see Peter reflecting on this moment? What is his hope? When Peter remembers his denial and Jesus being beaten, what is the thing that enabled him to have hope? Is that God determined to put to death his son? For our sins, including Jesus' or Peter's rather denial and failure. That's why we can repent of our sins. We turn from our sins not because we think we 
get forgiveness from it. We turn from our sins because God is true. God is true to his word and will forgive us of all our sins if we trust in Christ and him alone. So we embrace our weakness. We offer that as the only thing we offer to the living and true God. That we are weak, that we are sinners, and that we are in need of salvation. We, like Paul from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. He talks about the grace of our Lord, of our Lord overflowing with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance in verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1. That Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's our hope. And aren't we glad that when the truth is on trial, that he's shown innocent. All of his words prove true. Both in his life, of living an innocent life, of being an innocent lamb that God's going to sacrifice for his people's sins. And also in every word he spoke, every prophecy he uttered. We get the encouragement that all of Jesus' words come true, along with Isaiah's, because both are the word of God. Does that give you hope? Does that encourage you? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are constantly pointing us, a weak and fragile people, to our inability, but our great God's capabilities. Lord, we confess with the psalmist that if you were to keep a record of our sins, none of us could stand. But with you, there is forgiveness. That is why we fear you. That's why we wait on you. That's why we put our hope not in our capabilities, not in our ability to be faithful to you, but we put our faith in your ability to be faithful to us. And we thank you that you've given us so much evidence, time and time again, in our own lives personally, but also in your book of where you've kept your word and proven yourself true. Lord, we confess that if we don't trust in you, we are without excuse. And may we not try to find loopholes in your word to excuse our sin or loopholes to try to get out of believing in Jesus for our, as our only hope. May your spirit come in our hearts, convict us of our sin and of your righteousness to the praise of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let's respond to God's word by singing his praises. Find the song in your hymnals, number 521. 